Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This guy is so interesting, and he, he kind of checks so many of the boxes for a, uh, an ideal 10% happier guest. Not only is he a meditator, but he's um, <laughs> he, he writes a weekly column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. And it's all about social psychology, self-help, productivity, uh, science of happiness. He is also um, an avid and ardent and very effective critic of the power of positive thinking and the secret and all this junk. Uh, and in fact, you wrote a whole book about it called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, in which he explores the upsides of negativity, uncertainty, failure, and imperfection. My kind of guy. His name is Oliver Berkman. He's really smart. And in this episode, we, we talk about positive thinking. Uh, we talk about meditation. We also talk a lot about productivity. He's writing a new book about all these productivity hacks that have become so popular. Well, he's really skeptical about a lot of these. And what he had to say, I found to be deeply interesting. And we talk about something uh, that um, some of you on Twitter have been encouraging me to, to take a look at, which is stoicism. Someday we'll do a whole episode on stoicism. I have a guest in mind for that. But we talk about it a little bit in, in this episode. So that'll make some of you very happy. So Oliver's coming up. Uh, first, uh, one item of business and then your voicemails. The item of business is very quick. I just want to point out that uh, we have, we have, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, a new teacher on the 10% Happier app. Her name is Diana Winston. She's based out of uh, UCLA. She's a phenomenal human being, and she's got a new meditation on joy, which has just gone up in the app. So go check that out. Let's do your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is Paul from Westchester County. Thanks for the podcast. My question is about a concept I think I've heard you talk about before, which is that for people who, who want to be productive go-getters, and I'm a business leader, being self-analytical and even even self-critical can be quite helpful, right? You make a, a, a delta between what the plan was and what happened, and, and, and listing what didn't go perfectly is helpful in, in improvement, right? Um, but at the same time, if we want to feel good about ourselves, it's important not to attach that criticism with our sort of self-worth, our love for ourselves. Uh, and I think I've heard you talk about the trick is to disassociate yourself, to, to watch it like a movie that you're not in, which sounds <laughs> easier than it is. And I'm, I'm curious if you've got more advice on how to do that successfully as, as, and as a habit, and if there's any materials you could point us to on that. I'd be grateful. Thank you. Yes, I have a, a specific answer on on a technique that I found useful. But let me just set the table a little bit on uh, on the issue. First of all, thank you for the question, Paul. I really appreciate it. This is something that anybody who's ever listened to the show knows before is a, a big area of exploration for me. Um, I, there's no question that being, to a certain extent, self-critical and analytical can be – very useful. And, and how are you going to you know improve at anything if you're not learning from the mistakes you've made? So all of that is, of course, you have to do that. By the same token, you don't want to be so wrapped up in self-criticism that you're just turning yourself into your own punching bag. And I think that lowers your resilience, lowers your effectiveness, and also just not for nothing makes you pretty hard to live with. I say that all from personal experience because I've done all of that. 
and to a certain extent continue to do all of that. So it's really about finding the balance. And I'll tell you just for me, one of the things that I've found useful recently is uh, self-compassion as a practice. Now, uh, every time I talk about compassion practices, I always say the same thing, and I apologize if this is tiresome to some of you, but I feel the need to say it, which is that it's it it can be pretty annoying, um, these, these compassion practices. There's just no two ways about it, but they work in my experience, and there's science to suggest they work. Uh, so self-compassion as a practice uh, is usually taught as a... Um, you know, in a classic Buddhist way, it's usually taught as, um, you know, part of a, a overall uh, loving kindness or friendliness practice where you envision uh, uh, beings, people or animals, and you send them well wishes. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you live with ease. Uh, may you be healthy and strong. And I found that directing that to yourself as a formal practice on the cushion can, it feels really weird. Um, and often you're you know, you, many of us have difficulties with ourselves, so it can be, you know, it can be tough to muster that self-compassion. But it doesn't really matter, in my experience, what you're feeling on the cushion. It's the overall vibe that it creates in your mind, in your life writ large, that is helpful. And it's helped me walk this line that we talked about between being ruthlessly self-critical when it's required and then just beating yourself up so much that you you know are are beating yourself down and you know into a grounding grinding yourself into a fine powder and you're just not useless to any you're not useful to anybody and so just overall having a, a friendlier attitude toward yourself seeing that every, everybody makes mistakes everybody has difficulties it's not that big of a deal um that I think allows for greater resiliency over time. So there are self-compassion practices available in the app. Um, I suspect if you Google self-compassion guided meditations, you could find them for free on the internet as well if you don't want to subscribe to an app, which I get. Um, so yeah, there are ways to do this and also plenty of, um, you know, in, in, the, in the most recent book I wrote, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, Jeff Warren, uh, the meditation teacher with whom I wrote the book, uh, uh, has a great... Um, a great meditation about that, which has profanity in the title, so I can't give you the title. Um, so lots of ways to, to go for this. And I found, again, that it's not so much about sitting there, hugging yourself and feeling this boundless self-love. I mean, maybe you get there. Some people have reported getting there. But it's more about just having a different inner climate, a balmier uh, weather pattern internal, internally that allows you to bounce back from your mistakes and to engage in the in the uh, self analysis without engaging in self flagellation. Okay, thank you, Paul. Here's voicemail number two. Hey, Dan. Uh, my name is Ryan here at Gilbert, Arizona. Uh, I'm a big fan of your two books, your app, and, and podcast. And uh, I've flirted with meditation for close to 15 years and was never able to get too consistent with it. That changed once I stumbled upon 10% Happier. Now, reading your story, I immediately connected with your interest in meditation and your initial trepidations towards the practice. Now, um, hearing, again, the numerous mental and physical benefits of meditation, I recommitted myself to daily sessions in the morning. And so far, you know, the lessons on the 10% Happier app have really helped to increase my focus, my ability to catch my incoming emotions and respond not react to them, and, and most of all, 
really be more present. Like after a long day at work, I now find I could be much more present with conversations with my wife. So I really, first of all, I want to get this out of the way. I wanted to thank you for really reigniting my interest in meditation, really for providing such great content through your, your new book mostly. And then of course the, um, the great app that you have that I'm really enjoying. So this leads me to the question. Um, I was hoping that you could address this on your podcast while meditating and focusing on my breath. I've gotten better about catching my thoughts as they pop up and really bringing my focus back to my breathing. The, the trouble I'm having is that sometimes those thoughts, I, I find are really useful ideas and insights that can really potentially solve lingering issues in my work or finances or marriage, like one of those kind of eureka type moments that you typically would have in the shower and your subconscious really you know, comes out. So um, I'm finding I'm having more of those now that I'm, I'm becoming more proficient in meditating. So my fear is that when these thoughts come up, I'm letting go of them so fast and refocusing on my breath that I fear losing some of those ideas once my session is complete. And then that fear of losing some of those great thoughts that come up or ideas or even, you know, tasks that I forgot about that all of a sudden rumbled up that I, I need to make sure I get completed. Um, uh, you know, that fear takes over my meditation. And I get seriously off track. So uh, that's my question. Sorry for such a long message, but uh, wanted to see if there's any helpful solutions to uh, to this. Thanks, Ryan. No need to apologize. I like the long message, and I really uh, I liked hearing your story, and uh, I appreciate it a lot. The question's a great one, and I feel you. I get it. I <laughs> This happens to me. It's kind of beautiful that this happens. You're in meditation, and great ideas come, or what you think are great ideas come, and it's really tempting to get up and write it down or act on them. I'll tell you what I do. This doesn't mean you have to do it, but here's what I've done is I just trust that if it's a really good idea, it will still be there when I'm done meditating. And thus far, I've – well, how would I know? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I did have great ideas in meditation that I've totally forgotten and then I never wrote them down and they're lost to forever. But – I. I uh, usually uh, I feel like, and again, I can't I can't say this with 100 percent certainty, but I feel like usually they're there. If not immediately at the end of the meditation, they just come back to me at some point during the course of the day. And I find it really interesting to 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 notice, OK, this idea has come up and now I'm really agitated about, you know, holding on to this idea and then watching my mind and making a little mental note of the agitation, the restlessness all of that is really important to see because, again, what is what one of the main things we're trying to do here is just to see how turbulent and tumultuous our minds are so that we're not owned by the aforementioned turbulence and tumult the rest of our lives. And so this this is yet another opportunity to do that. So, again, I'm not telling you what to do. Um, if you disagree with me, I think it's probably entirely kosher if you keep a notebook next to you while you meditate and and write things down. Um, I wouldn't rule out myself even doing that at some point in the future. But what I've done thus far is to just trust that the idea will come back to me. And I haven't been burned, but again, I admit I wouldn't know whether I actually have been burned. But I think. Uh, but bottom line is, I think the fact that that you're getting into a situation where the discursive thought, the, the habitual thinking thought patterns are quieting down enough so that new ideas can emerge. 
I think that's really cool and does show that you're getting somewhere in meditation, although the idea of getting somewhere in meditation is a bit of a dangerous concept about which I could say much more at a, at a later date. But thank you very much for that question. It's really excellent and also for your story. Let's get to our guest this week, Oliver Berkman. I really enjoyed this conversation. As mentioned, he's a columnist for The Guardian. He wrote a book ruthlessly criticizing uh, the power of positive thinking, for which I will always love him. And I do want to say one thing before we get into this. You will hear me talk about Adam Grant here. Adam Grant is a uh, business school professor at um, Wharton University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, who wrote an excellent book called Give and Take. And I expressed some frustration about the fact that Adam Grant has publicly criticized meditation. We taped this before I then uh, we taped the interview with Oliver Berkman before I actually ended up meeting Adam Grant and recording a podcast with him, which has already been posted, in which I work this through with Adam directly. And in a very and I found I found Adam to be awesome in dealing with my criticisms of him and really thoughtful and just awesome generally as well in many other ways. So uh, you'll hear me talk about Adam Grant, but just know that that there, there's a happy ending here in that I go on to meet him and uh, talk this stuff through. So that being said, here we go. Here's Oliver Berkman. So I uh, I always ask the first question, the same first question, which is, uh, how did you get interested in meditation? Wow. Um, I just sort of stumbled into it through uh, some book that I can't even remember years and years ago. I write this column in the Guardian newspaper where one of the things I do is uh, read, review, try to sort the wheat from the chaff when it comes to self-help techniques and books and stuff. So it was uh, just inevitable, I guess, that I would get to get to meditation. And so do you decide to do it just because the science was suggesting you should? Oh, well, the whole column is, right, just an excuse for pursuing my own, like, therapeutic project under the, <laughs> under the guise of... Uh... Just for everybody so they have it with the name of the column. Oh, the name of the column is This Column Will Change Your Life. <laughs> it's meant to be a joke, and to this day I'm still uh, dealing with people who maybe don't, don't, don't see that. But anyway, yes, it's, it was meant to be a joke, although, you know, uh, depends how you define change, I suppose. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I, the whole reason I stumbled into that in the first place was that uh, this great journalistic excuse that you can you can say that you're doing things for research purposes that you would otherwise find weird or embarrassing to, to get involved in, books you might want to read, workshops you might want to attend. And it's this kind of um, alibi to be doing it uh, as, a, as a journalistic project. I don't know if that resonates with you. It does, uh, um, fully. But what do you think is undergirding all of that for you? What's going on that you would have wanted these resources? I, I think wanting to be uh, happier and less stressed and less anxious and calmer is pretty much universal. It's yeah. just that lots of people, maybe especially lots of British people, I don't know, don't want to don't want to come out and say it. Um, I think that's changed a lot in the in recent recent years. Well, meditation is uh, certainly pretty big. Your side of the pond, absolutely, and it's not uh, you know that's not an embarrassing thing to talk about. I don't think anymore, at least in the circles I mix in. Yeah. Um, so, when would you say you actually uh, adopted the habit of meditation? What, how abiding is it? What do you? How much do you do? Uh, these questions, yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm getting a good sort of forty minute sit in every day. Oh, that's but, pretty big. Well, I know it's only a, like a third of 
what I hear you... Uh, yeah, well, the, the, I'm <laughs> not the yardstick. <laughs> no, but I also feel bad talking about it in those terms just because that's like when I say lately I've been doing that, I mean like the last few weeks. <laughs> uh, I've been fairly consistent at getting at least a, a small chunk every day probably for the last nine, ten years now, and I've been twice to um, on a week-long silent retreat, which both of which were kind of really amazing and you wrote experiences about it. for me. Yeah, well, the in first one book. I went on, I wrote, I wrote about in my in my book about why positive thinking is bad and negative thinking is good, uh, and I was sort of exploring this idea of meditation as kind of opposite to positive thinking. This idea that it's about sort of learning to be with all the negative stuff uh, as well, instead of trying to uh, stamp it out, which I think is really what's going on with a, a lot of the self help industry. It's a kind of form of avoidance. Um, I, I remember when I was. I remember having the insight that that um which is clearly not an original thought um back when I was writing my first book that meditation is like the opposite of the power of positive thinking it's the power of negative thinking you're just kind of that's a little glib but um you know you're basically leaning into all the stuff that arises as a way to to instead of um uh being yanked around by it to see it clearly so that it doesn't own you and and in the middle of my writing, my literary agent sent me your book, which had just come out, <laughs> and it made me so angry because your book, The Antidote, uh, right? It's called The Antidote. Yep, right, yep. The, subtitle the subtitle is, is Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Right. And so I remember reading the, reading this book. I don't know how much I even read of it because it was making me so angry and anxious <laughs> to be in the middle of writing my book and to get yours. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly that is a big a big realization, I think, for people. Can you say more about why that was important and powerful for you? Yeah, I think there's this general principle that holds true, at least for me, which is that um, all sorts of negative thoughts and negative experiences, they get most of their energy or a lot of their energy from being thought. Um, and if thought. You, thought, yeah, yeah sorry. And, and if you give them space, if you give them, if you let them sort of play themselves out, then you learn that uh, they're actually, uh, you know, they, they, they seem you cut them down to size, you get some measure of uh, autonomy with, with regard to them. Uh, a, a thing that really works for me as well that I talk about in the book is a, a stoic technique, you know, from, the, from ancient Greece and Rome, this, this idea of um, really deliberately visualizing the worst case scenario when you're, when you're anxious about something, when you're, when you're worried about something, that instead of taking this positive thinking route of trying to... Uh, persuade yourself that everything's going to go really, really well. You actually think through in a very sober way, okay, what would actually happen if it all went as wrong as it could go? And there are two benefits to this. One is you almost always realize that the answer is like not as badly as you were thinking it could go. And even if it would be really bad, you know, there's a level of mental preparation that comes from sort of disarming these thoughts. They're no longer enemies who are squaring up to you to uh, do combat. They're just there and you've seen them and you've got the measure of them. And I think really meditation, in my experience, is that on a grand scale. It's just that with all sorts of of, of thoughts. Um, that maybe sounds a little bit like what I'm doing in meditation is following trains of thought, when of course what I'm aspiring to do is, is not follow uh, trains of thought. But, but it just leads, I suppose, to this general relationship to negative thoughts, which is one of like, okay, I, I see what you are now. I'm, I don't need to be completely governed by running away from you or trying to stamp you out. Well, for, for what it's worth to me, what, everything you just said makes complete sense. It sounds right. Oh, cool. That 
the I mean I don't I wouldn't call myself some sort of be all end all authority on these issues, but I think those are two separate techniques you're talking about. But I see absolutely how they work together and how meditation could be this sort of grander version of that. In that, um, what you're doing is a, 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 a giving, as you said, the the whatever negative thoughts or emotions or even the positive ones enough space to exist without us fighting them or feeding them. And then we see it clearly and we have the, the sort of freedom there to make some choices that are saner and wiser in the face of all the stimuli, internal and external in our lives. But I just want to go to the stoic technique that you talked about. I don't know. I mean, I have read enough of your book. I read the stoicism part of your book. Mm-hmm. And this is years ago, so I'm, I'm I'm really straining my memory here. So I might have incorporated – I might have been doing this naturally or I might have stolen it from your book. <laughs> but this technique is something I do all the time because my – I mean, I'm sure this is true in every line of work, but uh, it's definitely true in my line of work where there's so much insecurity, so much competition – and any data point can come over the transom of like, oh, so-and-so is getting some assignment that I wanted. Um, and that I go directly to, I mean, this is a Buddhist term here of this term, prapancha, where you, you know, some something happens and you immediately make this horror movie in your mind of, of how horrible everything's going to be because this thing has happened. Uh, so somebody will get some assignment that I wanted and then I'll... I'll project myself into the brain of my boss who's thinking, you know, Harris is um, lame and old or whatever, fat, whatever, and how I'm going to be living under a bridge, you know, that inexorably as a consequence of this one development, which may or may not mean anything. But I find actually going – I find dealing with it meditatively, which is seeing it for what it is. Oh, yeah, this is propancha is super helpful. But I feel like the cognitive approach that you describe – in the, uh, that the Stoics, mm-hmm. who are again ancient Greek philosophers, came up with of, of actually just saying, like reckoning with. So, what would this be like? What would it be like if I lost my TV career? Mm-hmm. What would it be like if my bosses came to me tomorrow? Well, I'm on a contract now, so uh, that would be problematic for them. But <laughs> what if they came to me? I, I renewed the contract in the in the fall, and there were some moments where, like, I got nervous. And I mean, not, not that my bosses did anything wrong, but I'm paranoid. And so I started thinking about, you know, what would it be like if I don't get another contract and I don't get another job and what would it be like and having big conversations with my wife about it and it was so comforting to do that it was actually the opposite of anxiety provoking once I really sat down and reckoned with what would this look like for real it was just knowing that I had a backup plan was massively useful do you find that's true with you yeah no I mean this is you're talking about how I navigate life too. I think a one really interesting way of seeing it is to look at the flip side and to look at the idea of reassurance, right? Because what you would be doing otherwise, if you were taking the other approach, is trying to reassure yourself that everything's going to go fine. But every time I think you you reassure yourself or you try to reassure a friend or a child, whoever, you know, that everything's going to go fine, you're surreptitiously reinforcing this kind of shadow idea that's implicit there that it would be absolutely terrible if they didn't go fine. So, you know, not only does reassurance need constant replenishment in a way that I, I find that worst-case scenario thinking doesn't, but, but it, it just builds the horror uh, of, um, of what would happen if you uh, turned out to be wrong. And, and so, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all the time asking myself, you know, this podcast. What's the what's the what's the worst thing that could happen in in how I uh, in how I do here? And it's not that that wouldn't be bad for me or for your listeners. It's that it wouldn't be anywhere near as bad as what my sort of anxious mind is is and my anxious emotional yeah. state is likely yes. to. So we tend to assume that everything is basically on the level of a of a nuclear war. Nothing bad um, is going to happen to you in this podcast. Wonderful. Nothing bad has ever happened to anybody on this podcast. I'm is... really glad to hear it. Uh, uh, but but you know yeah. So we just think that everything is everything is is a huge catastrophe. And as soon as you step through that, I mean, partly I got this from from Albert Ellis, you know, and from old sort of. Uh, I don't know who that is. He was a he was a very influential um, uh, cognitive psychotherapist who um, who was heavily influenced by by stoicism. And he actually took it further. He advised people to bring about the uh, negative circumstances that they were that they were fearing. So he would tell you if you had a great fear of public embarrassment or something. Well, you it, do this in I the book. I did this. Yeah, no, I did yes. this. It was it was excruciating. But you, but, you, you know, so I, tell us what you did. Okay, so he uh, he originally advised that you did this on the New York City subway because he was based uh, here in New York. But I did it at the time uh, on the London Underground. And all you do is you you travel in the. Uh, in in the train car and you speak out loud the name of each station as you get to it to everyone else in the in the train car and like whenever i'm this talk- is a great section in your book by the way and this by the way i'm speaking from this must be six years ago when right, i read this right. so well thank you i'm glad it i'm glad it stayed with you i mean there's, there's something there is something so weirdly horrible about thinking about about doing this oh i would not want to do what you did but it doesn't make sense that it should be that horrible, right? Because you're not picking a fight with people. You're not even dis- – like you're helping them really because, you know, uh, you're telling them which which station they're getting uh, to. But most people, including myself, hearing about this idea um, are sort of uh, thrown into a kind of gut-twisting uh, uh, state of anxiety. And so – Ellis said, well, then, then there's only one answer here. You've got to do the thing, you know, because, because then that's the best possible way of confronting, of, of forcing a confrontation between your ideas and your emotions and reality. And, you know, it's not fun to do this on the central line of the London Underground, but you very quickly learn that it's not anywhere near as excruciating as you, as you thought it was What was going the worst part of it? The looks you got from people? No, the worst part was all in advance. None, uh, none of the none of actually doing it was as bad as uh, as uh, the prospect. It's like that. I'm going to mangle it, but the the Mark Twain quote: "The worst things that ever happened to me never actually happened." Right. It's the anticipation that kills you. No, absolutely. And what and what happens when you do it is that people do look up at you, and you know they they, uh, they think there's something wrong with you, but they go <laughs> they go immediately back to their uh, phones or their newspapers because. And I really, this is another really important lesson, I think, when it comes to anxiety and stress and, and all sorts of negative emotions like that, is that, you know, almost everybody is completely obsessed with themselves. Mm-hmm. They do not have brain space to be, uh, to be worrying about and judging uh, you. And there's something incredibly uh, liberating about, about, remembering, about remembering that. So, you know, one way to tell that no one is paying any attention to you is to bring attention to yourself and see how quickly they... Uh, they they stop attending. It's a hugely liberating realization. You want to drink a water? You you drink, and I'm going to filibuster. Although I wanted <clears throat> to say what I was going to say anyway. So uh, the there's a great expression uh, or a great nugget of wisdom uh, imparted to me by my 
former boss. So I guess he would be like two ABC News presidents ago, uh, David Weston. Um, and David had had some negative articles written about him. One in The New Yorker that I thought was actually I, – I mean, again, this was in like the year 2000, but I remember thinking it was really unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody, you know, everybody kind of on some level wants to see their boss suffer. But even even by those standards, I thought it was really unfair. And um, and um, years later, where I was standing in a group conversation and somebody was asking David about this. And he had this – he said, when you go through some sort of public embarrassment, it's like being seasick. For you, it feels like the world is ending, but for everybody else, it's only just mildly amusing. Right, and and that's right. exactly right. Yeah. We're all the stars of our own movie. We have some bandwidth to pay attention to other people. Um, yeah, we like watching reality TV shows and things like that. So we, we do want some mild titillation or the, the benefit of comparing ourselves to other people in a positive way. But I don't. we don't care that much. So that's actually a huge thing to know. Uh, in terms of like all your, the amount of worrying we do about how we're going to look. Absolutely, yes. It, it just starts at a level that is completely uh, disproportionate to the reality. There's some very famous social psychology study that involved um, – they, they, they figured out in some, some advanced study that uh, it would embarrass a whole bunch of college students the most if they were wearing uh, Barry Manilow T-shirts <laughs> of, of, all, of all the kind of um, – of all the different T-shirts they could wear, and they sent them off into the the um, the cafe, the canteen at their university, and uh, asked them to judge, uh, to, to estimate how many people were um, noticing that they were wearing this Barry Manilow T-shirt, and then they polled the people who'd been in the restaurant at the time, and of course you find an enormous discrepancy, like almost nobody noticed you were there, and people assume that a very large proportion of people noticed and were thinking... Thinking mean thoughts. There's a big lesson there. Um, so the book in, uh, and again, this is you. You've got a lot of. You've got another book you're working on, and a bunch of more recent columns that I also want to talk about. But since we're since we've been talking sure, about the book, yeah. it, the book in part is anti-positive thinking, Jeremiah. Um, so I, I'm familiar with why the power of positive thinking is such a pernicious idea in, in the culture, and I talk about it all the time. But will you hold forth on, on, on the demerits of the power of positive thinking? <laughs> sure, yes. I mean, there are lots of different layers to this. There are sort of uh, political objections and, and objections having to do with the sort of the, the effects on a broader societal level. But I think right down at the the psychological root of it, there is just this fact that the human mind is not the kind of thing where if you give it a certain instruction and, you know, you're really relentless about it, it will follow that instruction, uh, especially when it's the same mind that's dispensing the instruction, right? So if you tell yourself to uh, feel happier, um, if you tell yourself to ignore uh, negative things that are happening, uh, you get this you very reliably get this ironic um, uh, uh, backlash effect where all you can do is think about the stressful and negative thoughts you're supposed to be uh, eliminating from your mind. Uh, All you can do is constantly monitor your internal experience to see if your attempts to uh, feel happier are working. Uh, The the analogy that I start off with in the book is that old thing about where you challenge somebody to, to not think about a polar bear for a whole minute and They've actually done this now in, in sort of psychology labs, right, where they try to get people to to narrate what they're thinking of in the minute that they spend 
not trying to think of a of a polar bear. And some people have a certain amount of success for a few seconds by sort of flooding their mind with other alternative things. But it always comes back to polar bears because as soon as you're trying not to think about a polar bear, it's all you can think about. And I think that works as a as a analogy for all kinds of positive thinking and other kinds of self help intervention. And they've shown, you know, again, there's research that uh, if you people who try people who try not to feel sad about uh, sad news or who try not to feel grief. Uh, after a bereavement, you know, in all these kind of contexts, that's when they get into real trouble with, with sort of uh, much more serious forms of of, uh, of psychological suffering because they're trying to not feel these very natural uh, emotions that are so, a normal part of human life. So, how did this become such a popular idea? That's a really interesting question, and my book is not mainly a history. There, I mean, I think there are. Um, I think it, on one level, it's just very appealing, right? It would be really nice if the answer to uh, the challenge of human well-being were just that you could really sort of make a very firm decision with Bootstrap. yourself, right? That you were going to just going to do it. I think there's also something that can't be ignored about. Um, individualism and i think this is why partly why it's such an american tradition uh this idea that like it's all down to it's all on you uh that your social economic situation is not uh determinant or necessarily even that important in terms of your ultimate success and your experience of life that it's all down to just like really 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 uh trying very hard to to feel good and to achieve the stuff you you want to achieve it doesn't have the same kind of tradition in in parts of Europe where I think people culturally tend to be just more sort of resigned to their fates, which is not, I don't think, a very useful alternative <laughs> to positive thinking, and it's not what I'm trying to advocate. But but uh, you know, there's this idea of it's very, I think it's very linked to like the American dream, the idea of self-made people, and that partly is to do with the idea that it's like not society's job to to transform your circumstances. It's a it's a it's an individual. An individual thing. Do Do you feel like positive, you know, the power of positive thinking, the secret, all the stuff is as big now as it was? I feel like in the, when the secret came out in in like the mid aughts, I think it was huge for a yeah. minute. Uh, do Do you th Do you think it's still out there in as big a way? I feel like this other. I mean, I'm not taking any credit for it, but I feel like this other way of thinking about things is really on the rise, and I don't think that things like the secret have the hold that they that they did back then it might just be because i spend so much of my time sort of connecting to people and reading stuff uh, and writing stuff from this other viewpoint but you know i think that so much of what's happening to the world politically economically geopolitics uh, environmental whatever it is you know it's just incompatible with this idea that everything's basically going to be fine as long as we uh think happy thoughts the idea that we're going to if we're going to stay resilient and um do some useful and important things we're going to have to learn to accommodate shocks and surprises and uncertainty and unpredictability i mean that's just that's always been true of everybody's life really but it's kind of unignorable now on the on a world scale i think so i think that might have something to do with it although it's interesting because per, i don't know if i've ever heard donald trump talk about the power of positive thinking but his pastor was i'm forgetting his name but i think he was the guy who wrote the power of positive thinking. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Although, you know, you that might be surprising to some people because this is the president who, in his inaugural address, talked about American carnage. Right. But he he actually, from what I can tell, um, and I, now I'm, I'm, I'm out on a limb a little bit because I haven't read this stuff for a while, but he actually was kind of raised with this. And you can kind of see it in his style, this, this um, you know, he, he's willing to kind of create his own reality, willing and able in many cases to create his own reality. So that it's surprising to me therefore that that has that we haven't seen a resurgence of the power of positive thinking notwithstanding all of the negative forces in the world these days that might disabuse people of the notion. That's interesting. I mean, I think it might well be important in terms of his uh his personal psychology, which is a endlessly compelling topic, but I think when you look at the sort of phenomenon of his election and the and the reasons that we understand for his election it's much more to do with like people confronting and interpreting bad times in one or another uh different way and i think to some extent wanting to wanting to uh get out of those bad times wanting so i mean i guess it's 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 a desire for the positive in some sense but i don't think i think in general this idea that you can think your way uh or sort of believe and uh Use affirmations to, uh, to to sort of force your way into a state of happiness. I think it's sort of uh, really on a downturn in yeah. general, and uh, I can't say that that part of how things are changing in the modern world I object to. <laughs> there are others. <laughs> so, so, so back to you and meditation. So, nine. You said nine, ten years ago you started doing it. Um, what, 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 what has it done for you? I think about this a lot because it's a kind of a difficult question to answer. I, I hang out with and know a bunch of people who are very serious about this stuff and who have sort of, uh, you know, ascended various ladders of, uh, of insight according to different traditions. And I feel like I've got no, I'm, I'm just like still trying to figure out how to, uh, put the ladder on the, on the ground, you know. <laughs> well, um, well, you're in, you're in good company here. <laughs> So in that sense, I can't sort of claim attainments or anything. But I think that um, – and actually, I don't even necessarily enjoy it m- much all the time That's or even – Thank you. <laughs> I don't either. Right. Really? That's not the point. Okay. Or even necessarily finish and feel better than when I started. What also I, not the point. Let me see if you think this is the point. I don't know. What I do find is like a really weird and completely undeniable correlation between – how things go in general when I'm doing it in general and how things go in general when I've fallen off the wagon. Interesting. Like how things go objectively in your life? I mean, it's not objective because it might just be pure well, placebo go. effect. Uh, there we go. But I say bring on the placebo effect. That's fine. Fine, but, um, yes. I just mean that, you know, uh, a few days after various times in my life when I've completely fallen off the wagon um, – I will suddenly realize that, you know, I've been getting mad about stuff much more often or I've been, you know, spending an hour on Twitter for every two hours of useful writing or something like that. And at some point, this correlation is just sort of undeniable. And then you you have to do it. It's been challenged recently because we have a uh, 16, 17 month year old, uh, 17 month old son. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And What's I his know- name? I'm trying not to give him a public oh, profile okay, just okay, yet. Gotcha, no, sorry to be coy about that. Unnamed but, baby. No, no, unnamed baby. He does have a name. Um, but 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 he's um, uh, 
you know, that's as as you know, that that throws an interesting yes. uh, variable into sort of rituals and routines and. and that's the time to give yourself a break. Yeah, I mean, I did for a while, but then I realized that actually it was a thing that was worth finding the time for. Yeah, well, that's right, that's right. But I don't know that how how hard you need to be on yourself. It's a double bind because in some ways you need it more in this period. So I do think it's great to see if you can carve the time out. But there's for for some people it's truly impossible to get forty minutes. Never, you know, even even five. So I'm I want to you know yeah. give people a break. Um, oh no, totally. I think what I found in my own experience after the first few months was that you know any idea, as long as I as long as I was hopefully being decent with my wife in terms of you know the time that it takes and the fact that I can't be looking after the baby at the same time, the idea that it was some sort of indulgence uh, it just isn't borne out by like I am so much. Uh, better to get along with does she see that um i think so i haven't sort of uh cross-questioned her about it she definitely sees that i'm sometimes easier to get along with than other times and i'm (laughs) telling you that it's partly to do with when i'm meditating well i believe you You asked before if i thought this was the point i definitely think this is the point when people ask me what how do i know my meditation is working i answer i just learned today that i'm not allowed to say this word um my producer sent me a note telling me I'm not allowed to say this word. So let me just say, are you less of a word that starts with A and ends with an E? Um, <laughs> is that okay? I'm looking at my producers who are laughing. Um, are you less of that than you used to be to yourself and others? Mm-hmm. And your answer is right squarely in the, in the in in the bucket there of like, yeah, you 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 feel like things are going better, which is just a kind of another way of saying your life is more easeful. You're relating to internal and external stimuli in a more uh, easeful way. You're not getting so clingy around everything. And you're easier to uh, to the people around you. And so that, to me, sounds like it's meditation that's working. I don't have any attainments either. You know, in other words, I haven't I haven't I'm not enlightened um, that I know of. Right, I always wonder. Like, you, one might not know. That's maybe, that, yeah. maybe not. If you, my, my, my passing understanding of the various Buddhist maps suggests that it's possible. I guess to be pretty far along and, and not know. But I, I, again, I could be wrong about that too. But I don't know. It's it, in some ways not fully relevant in my view. I mean, the point is, are you easier to live with to, for for yourself and others? And it sounds to me like you are. I I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 had a good column recently about um, uh, why meditators really annoy some people. <laughs> Can you say more about that? Yeah, I was just responding. There was a there was another. I don't remember the details, but there was another bit of uh, research, or I think a meta analysis, suggesting that a lot of the science was uh, not as firm. It as- was a it was a it was a science. It was an uh, an article that or what they call it a meta analysis, where they review existing studies and and make a conclusion and the the conclusion was meditation does not boost compassion i believe right yes and you know there's a there's uh, you know since that appeared and since i wrote about it i have been made very aware that there's also lots of other you know not just that there's lots of other evidence suggesting meditation is beneficial but that there are kind of meta analyses of a similar stature that find the opposite so i i did not try in that in that column to sort of adjudicate uh what is right and what is wrong but i was 
I was sort of responding to this idea that whenever that happens, among certain scientists and certain journalists especially, there's a kind of enormous amount of glee. Like there, there is something that a certain sector of people love about the idea that, that meditation so right. might be a huge waste of time. Because I have – I read this – your column with real satisfaction because I have a Google alert set on the words – Meditation and mindfulness. So anytime there's a big, um, you, must get, you must get about a thousand. Emails well, every a day. day at a, right. eleven o'clock at night, right. um, I get two emails that compile all the articles. Wow. Um, and when this meta analysis came out, there was a, just a deluge of headlines about how meditation is is baloney, and it, there's so much glee. Um, but you sort of talk about why you think that glee exists in the face of negative news about headline about meditation yeah i think you know and i feel like i know what i speak about here partly because i've spent plenty of time being very sarcastic in print about sort of new agey things and and things that uh, i'm sure are very important spiritual practices to the people who who do them and now i feel a bit bad about that but uh, <laughs> um i i think uh one of the things is this implication that you sometimes get from from people in the meditation world that they have found the secret to human happiness, especially then certain teachers and proponents who whose whole bearing, whose whole affect and, and tone of voice and everything suggests actually that they live in a state of perpetual monotonous calm that I think most people don't actually aspire to as a as a form of happy life. I mean, I'm not saying that's what their inner lives are really like, but the vibe that you sometimes get um, is that the answer to happiness is just to completely detach from all kind of experience of of human pleasures and sadnesses. So I think that, um, I think that uh, gets on people's nerves. Uh, I think that um, anyone telling you to do anything uh, is a, is, a, you know, problematic and it's especially problematic with something like meditation because sort of not trying is somehow part of what you're trying to do so it's kind of like you should do this but there's also no goal to it is uh is an annoying thing to say to somebody Uh, adam grant wrote a lovely column a couple of years ago now about uh being a, a meditation rebel and refusing to how he couldn't move for people telling him that he uh yeah, I, I okay. well, it's interesting you brought that up. I haven't, I wasn't thinking I was going to talk about this, but so Adam Grant is a, he wrote a great book. I want to have him on the podcast. It's called Give and Take, and it's yeah. about um, sort of givers and takers in a workplace setting and how actually altruism um, can counterintuitively be a really positive strategy, a really successful mm-hmm. strategy. But he wrote, so, and he's at the University of Pennsylvania, I think? I think so, yeah. Really Wait, smart. If guy. he said something mean about you in that column, no, 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 I can't no, no. Remember he it. didn't say anything okay, mean okay, about okay. me. He's not. Uh, he's not like that. Um, I don't know him, but uh, but he's not. Uh, from from all of the work I've seen of his, he's not some uh, jerk out there just like throwing bombs at individuals. Um, and so, actually, I say this with a lot of respect for him. Um, and again, he's somebody I want to have on the podcast. But that column, he wrote a column <laughs> in the New York Times, making fun of and really complaining about. Um, people who lecture other people to meditate, which, by the way, I agree with. I agree with what you're saying. Right, I think, and you don't do, by the way. Yes, I don't think you do do. So, yeah. I try not to yeah. because I tried it at home with my wife and it, didn't, <laughs> it went pear-shaped quickly. So I, the, the point is well taken. And, and the point of your column, of your column, the, uh, that, that um, 
the, the, the glee that we see among people who are kind of meditation rebels or critics um, whenever there's negative headline, I think is fueled by the fact that those of us who do meditate can be very, very, very annoying mm. in our proselytizing. Um, <laughs> so I don't actually disagree with what Adam Grant wrote in the column that you're referencing, the, the New York Times column, mm. which was a couple of years ago, which he just recently kind of refashioned for a television column on CBS Sunday Morning. Oh, really? And my beef with both of those things, and again, I say this as somebody who thinks Adam Grant is great, and so Adam, if you're listening, I want to have you on the podcast um, for many, many reasons. Um, but it's, uh, here's my beef, which is that somebody of his stature using a platform as powerful as the New York Times and CBS to make a case that actually will be detrimental to a practice that we know is good for you is a waste of time and is in fact not a positive move. It is a minor point to say that people who proselytize for meditation are annoying. It is a major point to say that there are, every, there are people out there, in fact, I would argue all of humanity, who are in pain and are suffering and could, be, could use this thing. And I would argue that in service of making a minor point, he has done real damage to the major important work, which is waking people up to the fact that this is a practice that can be really useful for them. So if I was to use the New York Times and CBS, or more likely in this case ABC, <laughs> to make the argument that people who lecture me about exercise are so annoying, well, that's just a kind of a dumb move. Especially since, I mean, especially so with meditation because it's in a much more precarious position than exercise. Exercise isn't in danger of at any moment of like, you know, uh, being thoroughly debunked. Uh, I don't think meditation is going to be thoroughly debunked, but I'm always worried that it's something could happen and, um, and it would um, – Take this thing that's still new in the consciousness and 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 spoil it and and give it such a bad reputation that we'd be, be back where we were in in the eighties with the thing you know where you know in the eighties sushi and yoga were weird and now like they're okay <laughs> and I think we're in that kind of tentative position with meditation so to use a platform like the New York Times and CBS to make this case which yeah technically is accurate there's no question people who lecture you about the you, that you should meditate are kind of telling you you're defective. Um, yeah, that's all true. But to use a platform like that, I think is, I don't know, not, I don't want to go so far as to say it's irresponsible, but like I would just say it's um, not helpful. I think that's a good argument that I hadn't considered. I, I think that the what where I was coming from is that as an act of expressing this irritation, I feel like that irritation is out there. It's okay to feel it. This idea that you know you are allowed to feel uh, a little bit annoyed by uh, some of the ways this message is communicated, I, I, I feel like in, at least in some people's cases that could make them, uh, you know, less antagonistic towards the whole thing because it would just be a question of being like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm not imagining it. There is kind of like a whole uh, fad going on, and. That sort of just grants them the permission to feel that, but I accept that that probably is not the the, the main uh, effect of a of a piece like that. But what I was trying to say towards the end of, the, of my column is that there's a real sense in which none of this 
matters. There's a real sense in which the science does matter, both for credibility and because if you're going to, say, spend public money in schools or something like that, you've really got to be sure you're doing something uh, that uh, does what you say it does. But on a personal level, in your individual life, or for me, like the idea that I would ever stop because the uh, stop meditating because the sort of um, critical mass of uh, failed studies just got, got too great is totally weird to me because the effects are there every day in my life when I'm doing it. Um, it might be placebo, but it's still a real effect in my life. It would just be very strange to um, stop doing that. As I said, in the you know, it's like if someone told me that. Um, hanging out with my closest friends wasn't really making me as happy as I thought it was. It's like, what, what do you do with that information? You know, it's like, it's okay, but I, but I think it does. And, and in, when it comes to happiness and to general subjective questions about the quality of life, then, you know, how things seem is how things are because seeming is the whole game. So, uh, you know, I, I would say, I would encourage people who are considering, uh, dipping a toe in the water to, you know, not see the science as kind of dictating their own, what, what they do. And, you know, say that you're allowed to be irritated with the way some people talk about it. And that shouldn't stop you either. Uh, well said. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. So you're you're working on a book about time and busyness and time management and why – I'm just quoting from an email you sent us – and why so many quote-unquote productivity techniques just make people feel busier and what we might do instead. So I have to say I don't use a lot of productivity techniques, but I do feel time-starved. Mm -hmm. I do feel like I have too much going on and it, I at times get – I feel crazy. Um so I would just love to hear – you can say anything you want. I'd just love to hear why did you get interested in this, what have you learned thus far, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I'll give it a go. The, the, the really annoying thing I'm learning about working on a book on this topic is that um, any delay that I introduce to the writing process is just the cause of so many sarcastic comments yeah, from know, like my nearest and dearest. Oh, no, I get it. Look, <laughs> I, I'm the Mr. Meditation, so anytime I throw a temper tantrum, it's like, oh, you're 10% heavier now. Well, yeah, it's, it's very annoying. Uh, what I'm, I mean, my interest comes from the same place, I think, which is that I've written about this stuff in a journalistic context. And yet again, it's because I, you know, that was an alibi for being personally interested in wanting to, uh, you know, get more done, uh, feel calmer about how much I had to do, all the rest of it. And and in this case, I think what I've, what I've really uh, come to confront is, sure, productivity techniques, that's like a thing that, that's like a subculture, but it's just kind of the, the an, an extreme expression of something that I think we're all, as a society, very locked into, which is this idea that, like, efficiency... Uh, is the answer to having too much on our plates, uh, that sort of pushing yourself uh, faster, working longer hours, having more self-discipline, like this is ultimately the way to get on top of everything and to uh, feel in control of of time. And one of the arguments that I'm making in this in this book, there's a lot of different things I'm trying to look at, but is is that in a world where the inputs are effectively infinite, where you could always get more emails, 
you could always have uh, more ideas. You could always your over demanding boss could always put more tasks on your on your desk. Getting more efficient at doing stuff just means that you work even more in an even more rushed fashion through an infinite pile of tasks that you never get to the end of. There's some amazing. Um, his, well, I was just going to say this is it's also affected by sort of social expectation, right? Because if you the, the the better and faster you get at doing things, the more you expect of yourself, the more other people expect of you. Uh, to some extent, this is just the old idea that you know if you want something doing, ask a busy person, mm-hmm. because you're just going to attract more work, attract more emails. If you if you get really really good at answering emails, I discovered this when I for a brief time achieved uh, the the dream of inbox zero uh if you get really good at answering emails um you just get more emails <laughs> than if you were worse at it because firstly you get a reputation for being responsive so uh you know people come to you rather than finding some other answer to their question and then secondly you know if you reply to an email you usually generate a reply to that reply and on it goes so so in other words the 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 more you get good at at, at get, getting through this, the the busier you get. And I think that isn't just email. I think that works for all sorts of things in our lives. And and as I say, it works for so social expectations too. There's a there's some great research into what happened when um, so-called labour-saving household devices, you know, washing machines and vacuum cleaners, started to become prevalent in in North America and in Europe. The people using them primarily uh, at that time anyway, uh, housewives and domestic servants, they got busier because the standard of cleanliness that was expected now that you could reach a higher standard of cleanliness just uh, just went up. So efficiency enables you to do more and then there's the expectation that you will indeed do more and it's a sort of ratchet that, that never stops. So I think that's one of the, one of the things I'm trying to, to look at here is if you really turn to the truth of the fact that we live in this world increasingly of infinite inputs, infinite things you could be doing, infinite things you might be missing out on. Um, you begin to see that whatever the solution to feeling at peace with time is, it's definitely not going to be uh, you know, climbing even more quickly up uh, a, an infinite mountain that doesn't have a, have a summit. It's going to be some kind of really sort of... Um, facing up to the trade-offs that are required and and deciding what matters so much that you're willing to let other things that are really important but not as important fall by the wayside. Um, I don't know. I feel like you must have figured something out about all this when I look at the number of things you you do and the number of good things you do. I would have thought you're, you know, you're you're not spending all your day answering emails that you don't really need to answer. You've 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 figured something out. I haven't. I haven't. That's why I'm really okay, interested in what you figure out. I mean, I, I do. I feel like I'm reasonably highly functioning, right? But I do feel crazed. And well, I mean, one little thing I do is uh, I make to do list a to do list, not several. Mm-hmm. This doesn't work for everybody because we have everybody's different. But for me, when I walk into the office this morning, for example, I was I had this cloud above me of I just know I have a ton of stuff to do. I find it really useful to write a list, to see it all there in front of me, and to start with the easy stuff first and just start crossing stuff off. That really makes me feel like I'm making progress. I have some control. I know what my priorities are. But that doesn't, I don't know, I mean, it's not a panacea. Uh, 
No, and I, th- I mean, I think it has a lot of plus points. I think the idea of getting stuff out of your brain, which, you know, uh, is a well-known sort of way to achieve uh, a bit more calm about stuff, I think that's absolutely real. Um, it almost has a kind of slightly kind of meditative sort of feel to the idea because it's something yes. to do with disidentifying from mm-hmm. stuff and, and not having it knocking around only in your mind. But I think one of there are lots of... Uh, negative consequences uh, of that kind of approach too. one thing that I've always struggled with in, uh, in my work and that I'm getting a bit better at as a result of trying to write about this whole question of finding a more peaceful relationship to time is this idea that of, you know, trying to clear the decks and tie up loose ends. And if you sort of take the attitude that you're going to postpone the stuff that really matters until you've got all these kind of annoying little things that are dragging at your attention until you've got them out of the way. If the supply of those things is effectively infinite, then you're never going to get them out of the way. And then you're going to fall into what I call in my current draft of the book anyway, uh, the importance trap where you get really good at doing the things that don't matter and you never get around to doing the things that do matter because they, you think you need lots of time and attention and you need to be fresh and, that time never comes. And that's another problem, I think, with all these kind of our approach to time and all these productivity techniques is that it causes you constantly to sort of live in the future and be thinking about like you're trying to get somewhere, but you're never quite here now. Um, And basically, I think that the path through this, you know, there are various individual techniques that I could talk about, but I think the, the sort of high level path through it is ultimately something to do with sort of accepting the truth that we are incredibly finite, that we don't have very much time and don't have uh, the capacity to pay attention to many things at once, Uh, that that just is the way it is, um, that you don't need to uh, spend your life trying to achieve kind of escape velocity and become uh, omnipotent with regard to time and productivity because you absolutely never will. And when you fall back into that, realization i don't think it's a a question of resignation or or despair i think it's that then you really are in a position to make the the right choices you know to say okay i have this amount of time today uh i am definitely going to disappoint somebody i'm going to fail in some roles i'm going to um not do something that it would have been good to do that's a guarantee so it's not like i need to carry on desperately trying to avoid that that circumstance because it's definitely going to happen. So then the much more important question becomes, who am I going to disappoint and anger and annoy? Uh, who, what, what roles am I going to fail in? And then at least you get to make the right decision, you know, or a good decision or a, a conscious decision. I'm not saying I do this perfectly every, every day, uh, far from it. But um, I do think what it really comes down to is that the best time management technique is to decide what matters most uh, it's a bit of a joke, I guess, but you know, decide what matters most, make time for that stuff. And, yes. and th- there is no step three, you know, yeah. oh, things will fall by the wayside, but they were going to anyway. So how do you know that, that everything you just said makes complete sense to me. Um, but one of the things I've been struggling with lately is, so I, one of the prob one of the things that I've done that's just made my calendar a war zone is that I say yes to a lot of 
Like uh, well, I'll do a bunch of interviews. Uh, you know, I'll have I'll I'll be I'll I'll do interviews for other people, or I'll take a, I'll put a phone call on my calendar or whatever. Then I just my day is just destroyed, and I don't have any clear time to think about the the, the really important things like my next book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so I'm trying to learn how to say no in a way that is actually okay. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I have a few. I, I think that uh, because that's what you're yeah. talking about. At the end, right? Of the day. No, that that's a big part of the challenge, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the one of the problems is that this whole idea that you need to know how to say no, which has become much more prevalent in the culture, I think, probably in the, in recent times, it tends to get interpreted implicitly as. Uh, how do you say no to all the stuff that you don't really care about so that you can do the stuff that you care about? But I think I think this is – there's a lovely quote that I don't remember verbatim from uh, Elizabeth Gilbert uh, who says that, you know, the real challenge obviously is learning to say no to things you, that you really do want to do and that really do matter because someone in, you know, someone in your position, you're not, you're not going to get – if you look at the things that that come to you, the opportunities that come to you that are genuinely good, they're not going to be perfectly tailored to the working day and then everything else you're getting asked to do is is obviously nonsense. You're going to get asked to do more genuinely good things than there is time for. Uh, so I think, you know, it starts with this idea that, like, there isn't a way out here. You're going to be saying no to some things that really matter and you can do it consciously or you can sort of do it just by default because you're already too busy when uh, you know something very very important for your work or your family or whatever comes up comes up uh, th- that day. So you need to. I mean, I try to start from this idea that 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 this is inevitable. I'm not. Su- it's not a question of suggesting that you turn down good things. It's start start from the idea that. Every day you are turning down good things. You know, every dis- every time you decide to use an hour for for one thing rather than uh, anything else, you're you're automatically turning down good things. There's an old uh, sort of cliched story in loads of time management books that I'm sure you've read at some point, where uh, this idea of like how to fit um, the, the it's about a university professor I think who presents his students with like a a jar, a glass jar, and then like several big rocks and some smaller pebbles and some pieces of sand. And he challenges them to fit everything into the jar. And these students who are apparently kind of, in this, this example, kind of idiots, they, they, they put all the sand in first and then all the pebbles, and then there's no room for the big rocks. And he then very smugly uh, uh, dumps everything out again, puts the big rocks in first, and then everything else fits, fits around. The idea that the moral of this story is supposed to be that if you that if you make time for the things that matter the most first, then everything will fit smoothly into your life. But this is a total fraud, this story, because he's just completely rigged the example by only having a few big rocks. I think the main problem that we face today is that there are too many big rocks to fit into any glass jar. I hope that made sense. Yeah, it does. Okay. I'm with you. Um, and you're going to have to take some you're going to have to accept that there are some big rocks that don't get into the jar uh, at all. 
just one other thing. I think this is fueled a lot by um, this trend for kind of minimalism and decluttering and the idea of stripping things down to the essentials. The subtext of that is that, you know, if you get rid of everything that doesn't really matter, you'll have time for everything that really matters. But the question is, like, what are you going to do if you don't have enough time for everything that does really matter? Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's it's easier to say than to practice. But as I say, I think we're already, already practicing it. It's a question of becoming more conscious about it. Yeah, but I, I, I think a lot of that, uh, all of it makes sense. The I guess my... It's now seems, is the time to tell me if some of it doesn't, by no, the way, because it's not too late. It, to I'm not hearing anything that doesn't make any <laughs> okay. sense. But it just seems to me that there's a there are two levels to this because there's the level of the big rocks. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, I, I, I can only attack I can only have so many missions. If somebody came to me today and said, Dan, I want you to like be you know, I want you to devote a ton of time to making um hockey as popular in the United States as it is in Canada, um, I wouldn't be able to put that big rock in the jar because right. I just have too many big big rocks. Um, so I, I'm making those decisions all the time. If somebody comes to me with with one of the a big rock, I'm basically going to say, no, I got enough. But then there's also just kind of the, the pebbles in the sand every day of, you know, you know maybe I should be doing the um, the umpteenth interview on somebody's podcast, but – you know, the, 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 I'm, I've decided that I that at some point I can't say yes to everything, or I can't get on the phone for a half hour with everybody who wants to get on the phone. Um, uh, so there, I guess what I'm saying there are two levels, and we need to think strategically on both of those levels. Yes, and I think partly it's to do with uh, pushing the bar that these things have to clear. I think in I'm I'm, I'm guessing that in your situation it would be. <laughs> um, uh, the, something to do with pushing a bit higher the bar that these things have to clear, right? Because undoubtedly you do get podcast requests or interview requests that it doesn't occur to you to accept, that you're like, that is just not a good use of my time. So I think, you know, it's it, it's partly a question of, um, uh, of kind of, you know, uh, uh, going a bit further than one is comfortable with, uh, in terms of where you set that that cutoff, um, uh, a guy called Derek Sivers, an uh, entrepreneur who's written some really interesting stuff o- online about all this, has this this idea that's gained a lot of traction um, that it should be uh, it, it should either be hell yeah or it's a no, which I think is doesn't work in every single circumstance, and he wouldn't say it works in every single circumstance, but there is that kind of there's that idea of kind of artificially. Uh, bringing higher the bar that, yeah. that something that something has to clear. I think that's provocative in a useful way. Right. Yes, I think that's exactly what he would say about it. Um, and, you know, th- th- this is a uh, – there's a risk in talking in this way of sort of falling into a, a, a way of talking that is people who, you know, get to do really fun jobs where tons of fun kind of opportunities come in the course of the day. And, you know, plenty of people could hear that and be like, I, you know, I have to answer every email that my boss sends because that's otherwise, you know, that's a part of the terms of of doing my job or, you know, any other number of ways of being overwhelmed in terms of time in your life where you really don't feel that you have that kind of choice. I think the really important thing to emphasize that the thing that is universal is that you have a finite amount of time and you're always choosing. And, you know, you might be in a situation where the choices you have to make 
are not between things that excite you. It might be that, you know, you really do just have to do a lot of things that you wish you didn't in order to meet your basic goals of feeding your family. But it's the same basic idea that you're going to have to let some things go in, in favor of higher things, things that matter to you more. And yet I think everything about the culture encourages us to think that if we drove ourselves harder and found the right techniques, we wouldn't have to make those choices. Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's a really good point. And I feel, I'll just say in closing, um, it feels to me like you're going to do for time management what you did for happiness in your first book. It's like there is there are people out there selling panaceas and happiness. It's the power of positive thinking in time management. It's these hacks, these productivity techniques that are like going to make you infinitely effective. And you're actually saying no, no, no. no. Actually, there, there. It's it's more complicated than that. And well, and also that if you turn to face certain facts about the situation that seem at first depressing, it isn't depressing in the long run because you are looking at the truth, and from there you can do all sorts of things uh, in a much more empowered way because you're not deceiving yourself anymore. There you go. That's meditative, um, quintessentially Buddhist. Um, the final thing I always like to do is just do what I kind of jokingly call the plug zone. Can you just – where can we find your columns? Where are you on social media? Again, the name of the of the uh, first book. Uh, give us everything. Uh, you can find my columns uh, mainly at uh, The Guardian, theguardian.com. Uh, I'm And again, it's called This Column Will Change well, Your Life. It's called This Column Will Change Your Life. Uh, my, uh, I'm on Twitter too much, uh, at Oliver Berkman, B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. And the book is uh, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Awesome. Thank you. Great job. Thank you very, very much. You survived. <laughs> yes. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. Welcome to Pura. The most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. Run! There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide, and best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you, here, in Pura. The Lion.
Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.